Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenants between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder how many times you've said to yourself or to someone else, I promise I will never do that again. I promise I will never do that again. You know, when I give premarital counseling, I typically tell people that are looking to get married, that's a bad thing to say to your potential spouse. I promise I will never do that again because that's a big thing to live up to for the rest of your life. It's better when perhaps you sin against your husband or your wife to simply ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness rather than try to never make the same mistake twice. I wonder if that's a regular part of your parlance, if that's something you say often. I promise I will never do that again. You know, if you're anything like me, then you've experienced how ineffective that is as a motivational tactic in our lives. That's a dangerous thing to say. It's a dangerous thing to say, I promise I will never do that again for us. But for God, it's not dangerous. For God to say, I promise I will never do that again, means that God can be completely trusted to do what he says he's going to do. In this story, we see God make a promise. He makes a promise to Noah and to all of the earth and through Noah to us as well, thousands of years later. That's what we're going to study this morning is the promise or the covenant that God makes with Noah. We're continuing through this series in the early chapters of Genesis called called Beginnings. And we've seen that these early chapters are full, 
full of great stories. And each week we're called to see ourselves and our lives in the light of the greater story of the world, which Genesis tells, because that story is also our story. Remember, we saw last week, and we really see every week, that the Bible is an unrivaled resource. It's an unrivaled resource for helping you to understand yourself and for helping you to know God. And the way God communicates this knowledge to us of ourselves and of him is through capturing our imaginations and our affections through these very old stories. I bet even if you aren't a Christian or haven't been in church for a long time, you've heard the story of Noah and the flood and the promises that God made to Noah and then signified through the rainbow. So today we're going to conclude Noah's story by looking at what happens right after the great flood, which we talked about last week. We see that God renews the promises that he's already made to mankind through Adam and Eve. He now renews those promises with Noah. He makes a covenant with Noah. And this relationship that God establishes with Noah and with Noah's children, we learn about ourselves through it. We learn about our own unworthiness and we learn about God's great mercy. Let me try and summarize the main idea for you this way. Okay, very simple sentence. Here's the main point. God graciously gives Noah... And all creation, a promise, and then he gives a sign to confirm it. That's the big idea. God gives a promise, and then he gives a sign to confirm it. As we walk through these verses, I'm going to break it into three parts. First, God makes a covenant with all of creation. Second, God makes a covenant out of pure grace. And then lastly, which I can't wait to get to this part, God makes a covenant that has a sign attached to it. He makes a covenant that has a sign attached to it. So there's your outline. Part one. God makes a covenant with all of creation. And we see that the floodwaters have subsided. Noah, at the end of chapter 8, built an altar of worship to God. And really what God is doing is reestablishing order. He's reestablishing order in the world. That's what's going on in those early parts of chapter 9. Remember last week we saw that the flood is like an act of decreation. Because the world is so wicked, God is undoing Everything that he made in Genesis 1 through creation, he's cleansing the world of its wickedness and then recreating the world after the flood through Noah. Verse 7 of chapter 9 makes that clear. Look at what God says to Noah there. Be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. That's exactly what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. So God is, in a sense, starting clean, starting freshly through Noah. And one of the things that God does with Noah is establish what he calls a covenant. Verse 9, I establish my covenant with you and your children after you. Now that word covenant is a word that we use a lot in our particular theological tradition And the word simply means a relationship that God establishes with us in which he makes promises. A covenant is a relationship God establishes with us in which he makes promises. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, and he makes a covenant here with Noah. He makes promises to Noah, and we see what the promise is in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. So God makes a promise to Noah and to his children. But there's something unique about this particular covenant compared to all the other covenants in the Bible. 
Here we see very explicitly that God doesn't just make the promises to Noah and to Noah's children. But it's repeated again and again that God is making this covenant with all of the world. Did you notice that? In verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, verse 15, 16, 17, it's said to every living creature, to the livestock, the birds, every beast of the earth, I'm making this promise to you as well. God is entering into a covenantal relationship with all of creation here in Genesis 9. With all of creation. He's making promises to his entire world. He promises never to destroy the earth by the flood again. And hinted in this promise is God's promise to actually preserve and ultimately redeem the entire created world. That's an interesting thing. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that human rebellion, what the Bible calls sin, human rebellion against God impacts every part of creation. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament that all of creation groans. It groans under the bondage that it's in to sin. And all of creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. So sin has cursed every part of God's world, not just our personal relationships with God and with each other, but literally plant life and animal life and everything that God made. So the whole of creation is subject to the curse of the sin, but also all of creation is going to be redeemed, going to be redeemed by God. That's a part of his mission. So we see in this covenant that God cares about people made in his image, He promises to redeem them, but he also cares about creation. Animals, you dog lovers are going to like me now. You didn't like me a few weeks ago when I ripped on dogs. I can't even remember the context, but I got all your emails. Thank you for sending those. Here we see that God loves animals. He loves insects. He loves birds and trees and mountains and oceans. And God promises to make all things new one day when Jesus Christ comes back. So very briefly here, we see right at the outset, a hint of the Christian hope. We see a hint of the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that God is going to renew all things when Jesus Christ returns. God's salvation is a global, it's a holistic salvation. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. That's what this creation that God makes with all of the world hints at. God makes a covenant with all of creation. Secondly, Noah's story tells us that God makes a covenant out of pure grace. God makes these promises to Noah, right? And I want you to see very clearly that the story tells us that God makes these promises to Noah not out of obligation, but simply because God is gracious. The covenant is, to use a theological word, unilateral. The covenant is unilateral. What does that mean? It means that God is the one who establishes it. This covenant is not an agreement that Noah and God come to after, say, a long bargaining session, like a sports agent trying to get his athlete a new contract. That's not what's going on here. This covenant, these promises, they come solely from the heart of God. Look at verse 9. I establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me 
and all the flesh that is on the earth. So what we learn here about the real God is that the real God pursues us. He pursues Noah here, and he pursues each one of us. Noah does not pursue God. And guess what? You and I do not, on our own, pursue God either. God is the great pursuer. God is the great seeker. God is the one who creates relationships with us, not vice versa. And that's really important. You know why that's really important? It's really important because none of us on our own can establish a relationship with a holy God. We see that even in Noah's story. We see in these verses uh, 20 through 25, strange verses. You probably tried to cover your children's ears as I was reading those, uh, that Noah messes up and Noah's kids mess up. And you ever think about it? Why does the author put this event right after God making the covenant with Noah? Why? Well, yeah, it happened afterwards, probably, but it's also artistically done to show that Noah does not deserve God's favor. We saw last time that Noah is a righteous man, but he's not perfect. Noah was one of the best of men, but even the best of men are only men at best, right? Noah's just like the rest of us. He has no claim in and of himself upon God. Remember what I said earlier, that the Bible is an unrivaled resource for helping you understand yourself. Do you know this about yourself? Even the best of you, even the best of you are hopelessly broken. Even the best of all of us are hopelessly broken by sin. None of us on our own can enter into the presence of God and live. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's what the Bible tells you about yourself, about your own life. Here, we see that Noah, good a man as he was, was not good enough to come into God's presence. And so God enters into the relationship with Noah. And he enters not because of Noah's deservedness, but because of God's graciousness. And there's more than one way that this point comes out in the story. Let me show you one other thing here on the idea that the covenant is purely of God's grace. Did you notice... Did you notice what God says repeatedly when he establishes the rainbow as a sign? We're going to talk more about the rainbow in a second, but look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, who will remember? Who? Tell me. God. He says, I will remember. I will remember my covenant between me and you. Listen, the rainbow is not a sign for you to remember God. That rainbow explicitly and repeatedly is a sign for God to remember you. Now, it's not like God forgets, like we forget. We talked about that last time too. It's not like God's like, I'm going to wipe Luke out. Oh, there's a rainbow. Never mind. I'm not going to wipe Luke out today. No, God's remembrance, we said last week, is God's act of moving towards the object of his memory. It's God's act of moving toward the object of his memory. What that means here is that the promises that God is making to Noah and the promises that God makes to you and to me do not depend in any degree upon us. The promises that God makes do not depend at all upon man. The text does not say, hey, when you look at the rainbow and when you remember my covenant, then I won't destroy the earth. That's not what it says. It says the promise is dependent not on our memory, which is fickle and frail, but upon God's memory, which is infinite 
and immutable. The promise is not, you should. God never makes those promises. The promise, rather, is I will. And that is grace, you see. Grace is the idea that God's promise is not based on my remembering God. God's promise is based on God's remembering me. It's not my laying hold, my laying hold of God's covenant. It's God's covenant laying hold of me. You know, I know a number of you, I'm not going to name any names and give away your secrets. And I know a number of people in my life that, you know, have tattoos. And oftentimes our tattoos will have a Bible verse on them. Or uh, some of us will get them in Hebrew if we're really spiritual, right? And, uh, or we might have a picture. We might get a picture of something that reminds us of how God has been good to us and faithful to us. And I, well, I'm not going to tell you about mine, actually. Uh, Just kidding. I don't have a tattoo. I promise. Um, And you know what? The, uh, that's a good thing. That's a great thing to be able to remember that God's promises are for you. But the gospel actually says that God has tattooed your name on his hands. Explicitly in Isaiah 49, we read, God say, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This covenant God makes with Noah says that God cannot and will not forget us. The promise, the covenant, is about God's unfailing memory his unfailing memory to forgive us of all of our brokenness and all of our wrongdoing. And the sign of the rainbow is a sign of God's unchanging desire to give us grace. God is not going to forget you. But I know, I know because I'm like you, a human, that some of you right now this morning feel forgotten. Some of you feel forgotten by God. And you know what? That's a common feeling. It's a common feeling for Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should know that that is actually a normal part of the path that we walk. We feel forgotten. Maybe you feel forgotten because you think you're in a hopeless situation and you can't seem to find a way out. Maybe you feel like God has forgotten you because you pray and you pray and you pray, but you don't receive any clear answer. Maybe you feel forgotten because people that you thought you could trust have left you or have hurt you. Maybe you feel forgotten because your heart is just cold. Your heart's cold towards God, even when we're singing, even when we're praying, even as you're listening to me right now. Your heart is cold. It's as if God isn't even really on the other side of the relationship. Some of you feel forgotten because you're suffering. You're wondering how God could have allowed this to happen to you. We feel forgotten in loneliness when a spouse dies, when friends are distant. Friend, this this promise, brothers and sisters, this promise of God is for those of you who feel forgotten. God has not forgotten you. God is with you. God loves you. God cannot and will not leave you, nor will he forsake you. The Holy Spirit right now is speaking to you through this story and seeking to stir up your faith in this promise. God is there. God is there. Trust him. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And this story is putting clothing on that verse. It's helping you to believe that that's true for your life as well. 
The covenant that God has made is purely out of grace, which means that it's completely dependent upon his faithfulness and not our faithfulness. Third, God makes a covenant. God makes a covenant, and like we've seen already, he attaches a sign to it. He makes this covenant out of grace with Noah and with us, and then he promises, he promises he won't forget us. He promises to be near us with his mercy, even when we fail. But God knows that that's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to believe that God is going to be with us, even when we fail. It's hard to believe that God isn't going to forget us because we feel forgotten at times. And so guess what God does? God attaches a visible sign or a token or an emblem like a wedding ring to the promise that he makes. And I want to tell to you a little bit about that thirdly, okay? Really, I'm convinced that everything you need to know about the gospel is seen in the rainbow. Everything you need to know about the grace of God is right here in the rainbow. Think with me about the logic of the rainbow. Why a rainbow? Every time God gives signs to the promises that he makes, the sign communicates something about the content of the promise. So in the Lord's Supper, right, the signs of the Lord's Supper, bread and wine slash Welch's grape juice, communicate something about the body and the blood of Jesus. They're communicating the reality of the promise. Baptism, the sign of baptism, water coming over the head of the one who believes, the one who is receiving God's promise, communicates what it signifies. It communicates the cleansing of sin, the washing away of sin through the water. So what is a rainbow? What does a rainbow communicate to us about God's promises? What does a rainbow communicate to us about God's promises? I want to tell you three things and then we're done. Okay. First, you never see a rainbow without being in a storm. You ever thought about that? You never see a rainbow unless there are clouds nearby. You'll never find a rainbow, as far as I know, scientifically, and I'm not a scientist, so send me some more emails. I got your dog emails. Send me your rainbow emails. Uh, you never see a rainbow on a sunny day. Look at verse 16. God says, when the bow is in the clouds, rainbows are always in or near clouds. There's always nasty, dark, stormy weather, weather nearby. You know what that means? Here's what that means. It means that you usually do not find the grace of God unless trouble is happening. I'll actually take that a step further. We never find the grace of God until we can see our own neediness, brokenness, and trouble in the middle of a storm. Suffering and hardship are often the pathway that God uses in our lives to help us believe and understand his great love for us. I was reading a book recently by a man named Jonathan Haidt. He's not a believer in Jesus as far as I know. This book is called The Happiness Hypothesis. And in this book, he writes about what makes people happy and why some people are happy just by natural disposition and why people like Presbyterians never seem to be happy, right, by natural disposition. And um, it's a good book. Thank you for laughing at my Presbyterian joke. Um, and in this book, he tells a story about a friend of his named Greg. And uh, Greg was a, a young assistant college professor whose wife left him. She left him for another man, and she took their two children with them. And uh, Greg got into a big custody battle and had all these legal expenses and fights over the custody of his children. And eventually, he won custody, but he found himself, as you might expect, as a single dad, working a full-time, low-paying job, 
And he had almost no hope of finishing this book that he was writing on which his academic career depended. And he was worried about, you know, the emotional and mental health of his children. And he was struggling when Jonathan Haidt, the author of his book, spent time with him. A year or so went by and Haidt again went to visit his friend Greg as he was writing and researching for this book. And what he found amazed him. He saw his friend Greg doing profoundly better than he had been a year earlier. And he asked him, why do you seem so happy given all these terrible things that have happened to you? And Greg went on to explain that people had rallied around him and given him amazing support. His church had helped him. His parents had helped him. He's actually received a lot of mercy and grace from other people in his life that he would never expected. And Greg observed how in the middle, uh, in the middle of many operas, In the middle of operas, there's often what he calls an area. I'm not a musician, so tell me if this is right later. Not right now. There's a crucial area, which is a sad and moving solo, he says, that the main character sings to turn sorrow into something beautiful. And Greg said to his friend, Jonathan, he said, this is my moment to sing the aria. I don't want to. I don't want to have this chance, but it's here now. And what am I going to do about it? Hate's point in the book is that oftentimes when we're singing the aria in our own life, when we're going through hardship, it's actually one of the ways in which we experience flourishing or to put Christian language on it, God's grace in a way that we never could have beforehand. And here's what's true. Some of you right now are in the storm. Some of you are singing the aria right now. And this story tells you again that God has not forgotten Actually, the gospel of peace enters into your life when the sun meets the storm, just like when you see a rainbow. A rainbow is never going to show up on a clear day, and the grace of God is going to show up most in your life when you're in the middle of a storm. The second reason you think the rainbow is important and the rainbow signifies the covenant is because you can't find the beginning or the end of a rainbow. You ever thought about that? I'm sure you have. I'm sure you're like me. When I was growing up, my brothers and I, after a rainstorm, would get on our bikes and we would ride for the hill. There were no hills. It was flat where I was. But we would try to find the end of the rainbow. And we never got there, of course. We were seeking the treasure or the leprechaun or whatever people say, right, is at the end of the rainbow. But, of course, you and me, of course, never arrive at the end. And that's part of the point of the rainbow. It's signifying to us that none of us can arrive at the end of the promise of God. None of you can arrive at the end of God's grace. The rainbow shows the sweeping promise of God's mercy. He casts our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. The rainbow is like a perfect picture of what the New Testament tells us in Ephesians 3, where we read that Paul prays that we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, the rainbow shows you that God's mercy is always more. It's always more for you. The rainbow shows you that the power of God's love is greater than the power of your sin. The rainbow says that no matter who you are right now, no matter what you've done, no matter the terrible things you've experienced or been victimized by or victimized others by, no matter what, you can't outmatch the grace of God. You can't outmatch the grace of God. Let that sink in. 
If you're here today and you believe that you're too far gone, that you're too guilty, that you're too bad, too broken, try to find the end of a rainbow. Try to find the end of a rainbow. You can't. Nor can you find the end of God's grace for you. It's matchless and it's abounding for sinners, even chief sinners like me. Third, last thing about the rainbow. And I really caught this for the first time this week in studying for this sermon, and it was so helpful to me spiritually this week. I hope it will be for you as well. The rainbow directs us, literally, to Jesus. The word for rainbow, if you notice in the translation I read, the ESV, the word for rainbow in, hum- in Hebrew is just bow. <clears throat> it actually refers to a war bow, a weapon of war, the bow and the arrow, right? And in the ancient Near Eastern world in which the Old Testament was written, there were all kinds of stories about deities and gods who would wage war against other gods with bows in their hands, and they would conquer their enemies. And even in the Old Testament, there are multiple verses where God himself is pictured in his just, righteous judgment as a God who shoots arrows at the wicked. But here we read God saying repeatedly, Verse 13, I have laid my bow down. I have set my bow in the cloud, God says. Now, many preachers and theologians throughout history have picked up on this, and I had never picked up on it. Which direction is the bow pointing? If the bow was pointing down, wouldn't that make you kind of nervous? (laughs) If you just inverted a rainbow and thought of it as God's war weapon? My kids and I, with Marianne, we went to camp this past summer for a day, and my kids got to shoot a bow and an arrow, and they all did great. And I was right next to them, and I was worried, kind of, the whole time that one of my kids would say, Dad, how am I doing? Dad, look at me. So, you know, it was a little touch and go there for a minute. Thankfully, everyone came out okay. When a bow's pointed at you, it can be a little bit nerve-wracking. But the bow of God in the sky is not pointing down, it's pointing up. Now, what does that mean? Notice also the bow's not broken. God doesn't smash the bow over his knee and say, I'm done with all this judgment business. Throw the bow away. The bow's still there. God still judges sin. But the rainbow is pointing up to tell us that God does not judge us for our sin. God judges the one who takes our place. You see, the rainbow shows us the gospel. The rainbow is a sign telling us that God has not stopped being a God of judgment, but God has aimed his arrows of wrath somewhere else. He's aimed them at Jesus. Jesus has come to take God's judgment so that we might have forgiveness. And like Noah, you are being summoned right here this morning, right here to trust God, to take God at his word, to look at the rainbow and believe that his promise, not to destroy us, but to save us, has its fulfillment. It has its fulfillment finally and forever in Jesus Christ, the one who takes away all of our sin. The point of the rainbow is that Jesus paid it all. Jesus has paid for our sin. Jesus has cast our sins away through his death as far as the east is from the west. The rainbow points at Jesus. The arrows have been shot at Jesus. Jesus covers you and I. God has made sure that his promise has its yes in Jesus, and he's made sure that we continually remember it by giving us the rainbow.
I want to close by reading from a storybook Bible. (laughs) Sally Lloyd-Jones has written the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you have little kids and you don't have that, you should order it literally right now on Amazon. Just ignore the rest of the sermon. Order that right now. Best children's storybook Bible I've ever read. And in her story about Noah, uh, she makes this point to conclude. I'm going to read it. Like a warrior who puts away his bow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light, a rainbow. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Let's pray.